Good morning, Crossroads. Thanks for worshiping with us today. We're always glad to have you joining us. We know many of you are returning to worship in person with us after a, a long time away due to COVID-19. So welcome back. It is so great to see you and glad to see so many smiling faces out there at me today. Also, we know many are worshiping with us online today and we want to welcome you. We hope that you're continuing to uh, join in and engage in worship. Uh, last weekend, we had a great weekend here at Crossroads celebrating our risen Savior. We had over 2,000 people in worship. We had several hundred volunteering. We want to say thank you to those who served in some capacity last week. Thank you for uh, making Easter just an awesome, awesome time. Well, we saw many people come back for the first time the in-person worship service last weekend, and what a day to do it. And we hope that everybody who was with us uh, just felt God's presence, and also that we continue to understand how the death and resurrection of Jesus defines how we live and how we love. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world around us is it's in the midst of some really seismic shifts. There's shifts morally, there's shifts politically, there's also shifts just economically. And all of this is kind of winding up into what is just a really crazy time. I think it's especially hard during this time to, to know what's right and wrong, especially when there are people out there who don't believe that those two categories even exist. It's hard to navigate the, the decisions, the conversations, even the relationships that surround us due to the high level of tension or debate, even anger and despair. I'm confident that the word of God speaks to and is relevant in any time. It brings purpose and peace to us. It indicates what God's plan is for his people. It gives us discretion and direction that we need to live in the world around us and yet continue to live lives that honor God, that, that operate from a focus and a filter that comes from heaven. That's why before Easter, we spent several weeks trying to understand what the kingdom of God is all about to understand how God's reign works through God's people in God's place or over God's creation. And today we kick off another study, a study that's going to be labeled 101. And I wanted to say up front that 101 doesn't mean simple, it means foundational. We're, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking through the book of Colossians to understand really what is the essence of following Jesus all about. What's Christianity all about? How can I navigate the world around me that is certainly post-Christian and still live a life that honors God and glorifies him and is lived with purpose and with passion and even with peace? The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. And we've chosen to work through this book of Colossians because Paul wrote this letter to address what it really means to follow Jesus. He also wrote this letter to address some heretical teaching that was happening in the culture around him and even within the church at Colossae. And also, he wanted to unpack what the gospel is all about, that the gospel is so much more than just not going to hell. It saves us, but it also is for all of life. Colossae was a, a city that was near the Lycus River. It's what's now modern-day Turkey. And it's set near the, uh, the city of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. It was on the pathway from that location toward the Euphrates River. I'm sure glad that they didn't have those large cargo ships in that day that would have caused a mess by getting turned sideways in this really important seafaring trade route. The Apostle Paul is actually in prison right now as he's writing this later. He's in the prison at Rome. And he's been visited by a fellow missionary leader named Epaphras. Epaphras was responsible for starting the church in Colossae. And he's also currently serving as the pastor there while he comes to visit Paul. 
He went to Paul for advice. How, how do I address this false teaching that is surrounding and, and really invading the church? And the false teaching was a, a mix of Judaism and Gnosticism. You might not be familiar with those terms, but basically this false teaching was focused on strict rules about what to eat or what to drink and other religious practices. It put a high focus on ceremonialism. Like it's really important what was happening on the outside instead of what's happening on the inside. It stressed having special knowledge, and it also was really disregarding to Jesus. It placed a huge dependence on human wisdom and tradition. Paul's writing this letter to those who identify themselves as followers of Jesus, and he's attempting to remind them what following Jesus is really all about. I hope if you're worshiping with us today and you're curious about what Christianity is, what does it truly mean to follow Jesus, that you'll commit to join us for the next five weeks as we look at what the Bible has to say about what faith in Jesus and following Jesus is all about. But I also hope if you've been following Jesus for a long time, that you will also lean in like never before to truly understand what's central to following Jesus. Someone said about the gospel that if you believe you've heard this all before, then maybe you've never really heard it for the first time. Today, we're going to look at the, the first topic we're going to unpack as we go through the book of Colossians, and that's the gospel. The book of Colossians is four chapters. It's 95 verses in total, and it can be read in about 15 minutes, probably in one sentence. Steve O'Nan is a volunteer here at Crossroads that helps with sermon research. And after studying through the book of Colossians on his own, he wrote this. He said, in just 15 minutes, Paul will give you the gospel, the good news that Jesus has solved the sin problem in your life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He will give you a compelling argument why Jesus is Lord and why he's God in the flesh. He will teach you how to pray and what to pray for, how to grow in spiritual maturity and thankfulness. Paul will encourage you. He'll free you from legalism. And that's just in the first two chapters. In the last two chapters, he'll continue to give practical application to the doctrines that he's been teaching, how to handle every relationship in a godly way, additional teaching on prayer, and then close with a few final instructions followed by a heartwarming shout out to a few of his friends. Steve says, don't just read it once. Read it as many times as you can. It will be worth the time every time. This series, we're going to provide you with some homework. In fact, when you came in today here in person, you may have picked up this card that's labeled homework. If you're joining us online, you can see that in the chat. And each week, we're just going to provide some assignments that would help us continue to build upon this foundation of our faith. And so here's the first assignment for today, and that is to read the book of Colossians this week. In fact, we've given you a simple checkoff if you're one of those people who need to like check that progression. So you can read it in one sitting, you can break it up in a couple times, but I'd encourage you before you come back next week, read the book of Colossians. Also, I'm just going to encourage you to bring your Bible with you. We use the Bible a lot around here at Crossroads. Whether you have the Bible on an electronic device or you bring a hard copy, it doesn't matter. But I'd encourage you to bring your Bible with you every week. And right now, I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Colossians. We're going to begin at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And listen how Paul kicks off this letter to a group of Christ followers. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul, as very common in the ancient world, begins the letter by identifying himself. And he says that he is an apostle, which that means he is one who's encountered Jesus. 
And Jesus has appointed him and given him authority to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches. He's providing his credentials up front because he is qualified to address the false teachings that are going on. But he's also making a statement about God's will and plan for his life. He had surrendered to God's plan for his life. And he, he speaks of that. The book of Acts records Paul's conversion as well as commissioning in three different times. The first time is Acts chapter 9, as it happens chronologically as Luke tells the story of the history of the church. The second appearance is in Acts the 26th chapter, as Paul is being, making a defense to King Agrippa. And I skipped over one, Acts 22, as Paul's being questioned by the religious leaders. All three of those moments, Paul speaks of his transforming, of the, the gospel that has saved him. You see, if you're not familiar with Paul's story, he was once called Saul. And Saul was a really bad dude. I mean, he was a rough customer. He had a mission in life, and that was to go from town to town and to persecute those who were following Jesus. His goal was to eradicate all of Jesus' followers. He uh, even describes himself as the worst of all sinners. On one such trip to Damascus, Paul was traveling along, and he saw a light from heaven, and he says it was brighter than the sun, and it blinded Paul. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice that said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Paul asked, who is this that is speaking? This is what the voice said. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This moment changed Paul's life. He was never the same. He came to understand the gospel, the good news of salvation, being forgiven of sin, rescued from darkness into light. The good news of salvation. That's what Paul experienced in the gospel. The gospel simply defined as this. It's the good news that God has saved us from our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus and set us apart to live lives that please him. The gospel motivated Paul in his ministry to share the good news with the world. He knew that it had changed his life and he wanted everybody to experience the same. He was grateful for the transformation that he had seen in his own life, but also he recognized the transformation that was happening on the, in the lives of those in Colossae. So he opens up his letter with a praise to God for the gospel. Continue reading with me in Colossians 1 now in verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about what you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understand God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul affirms how the people of Colossae had responded to the gospel themselves. They had placed their faith in Jesus, and they were loving each other because of what Jesus had done on their behalf. 
Paul speaks of the prominent triad that's found throughout all the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. He mentions faith first because without faith, there is no Christian life. This faith is a saving faith. It's a trusting Jesus for salvation and more. It's a daily absolute trust in Jesus, acknowledging him as the Lord over our entire life. Once believers learn to depend and focus on Jesus, this Christ-centeredness can only result in emulating his love for others. This love is a distinguishing characteristic that one is experiencing the gospel. Remember what Jesus said in John 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciple, if you love one another. Jesus is calling his followers to a radical love. We love the undeserving because of the way that God has loved us. Both this vertical faith and this horizontal love, Paul says, spring from the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have hope of eternal life with God in heaven. And this hope becomes a dynamic force that transforms our approach to life. Through this hope, we are more certain about our ultimate future than we are about our complicated present. It's not wishful thinking. It is a confident trust. And Paul thanks God that he has heard about how the gospel has produced faith, hope, and love in the people of Colossae and the Christ followers there since the day they had first heard it from Epaphras. He comments about how the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in their lives, but also throughout the entire world. I'm encouraged and excited about what Mark White had shared with us earlier in this worship gathering about how the power of the gospel is transforming the Muslim world. And we have an opportunity to be part of that. We may never leave the United States, but we can be part of what God is doing throughout the world through prayer. And I would just echo and affirm your commitment and your participation in these 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. Richard Chan says this, the gospel is about Jesus. The fruit of the gospel is about us. The fruit of the gospel is about transformed lives, our faith in Jesus, our love for each other, and our good works. The gospel creates a life of love. Paul prays a prayer, a praise a prayer of praise for the power of the gospel, that it changes hearts and that it changes lives. And then he continues to pray, but this time he changes his prayer to a prayer of petition. Look and listen what he prays for next, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul asked God to fill the believers at Colossae with knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, not just a little bit, but a whole lot, to the full and overflowing. God has promised to give us wisdom when we ask, but even better, he gives us the Holy Spirit to be our counselor, our guide, our helper, 
to endow us with wisdom, the mind of Christ, to be able to discern God's will, his good and perfect will. And then he gives us the power to live accordingly. Throughout the Bible, wisdom is not this a collection of a bunch of intellectual head knowledge, but it equates to living in God's will and in his ways. I believe that effective Bible study is always practical and leads to obedience. Wisdom, Warren Wearsby says this, wrong doctrine leads to wrong living, but right doctrine leads to right living. But it can't just stay stuck up here in our head. It has to translate to our heart and it has to be exhibited in the life that we're living. And that's why in Colossians 1 verse 10, Paul says, I wanna help you live a life worthy of the Lord. He refers to a lifestyle that reflects God in every way, that asks God in every decision, what God do you want me to do in this moment? The Lord of the universe decides what is right and what's wrong, what is righteous behavior. And we make him Lord of our lives in the small things as well as the consequential things. We bring him honor and pleasure by living according to his will. You know, knowing God's will has always seemed a little bit like an Easter egg hunt. Like there's lots of blessings from the Lord and lots of things that he wants our lives to exist in, but we have to go and kind of find them in some mystery hunt. That's kind of how we think about God's will. But finding God's will is not a game and it's certainly not even really that difficult. Scripture is very clear what God's will for us is. Paul speaks to it to the Thessalonians. He says this, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here it is. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction, Paul says, doesn't reject a human, but God. For the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. You know, so many times we confuse or even paralyze our own selves trying to discover or discern what God's will is. Where should I go to school? Who should I marry? What job should I do? We ask all these questions, and while there are certainly decisions that we make that could be outside of God's will, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have God's word to teach us and lead us into what honors him. But really, God's will is all about, and is nothing else than living in holiness. It's living a life that pleases God wherever you go to school, whoever you marry, whatever you do for a job. God's ultimate will is for us to be holy. And he saved us to make us holy. Francis Chan, pastor and author in his book, Forgotten God, challenges us that many times we think about the will of God in these like 20 year segments, like what will my life be in 20 years? When really God's will is about the next 10 minutes. It's about honoring God in every decision, in every interaction, with every thought, with every word, living lives that are filled with holiness is God's will and we should be active in it. Living lives that please God, that's truly the will of God. And it's a result of the gospel because the gospel is not just about going to heaven or not going to hell. It's really about how to live right now in the here and now. Paul does a great job in this passage describing the fruit the gospel produces that manifests itself in a life that is worthy of the Lord, that pleases him in every way. You know, I wonder, do you feel aimless? 
Do you ever feel like you need direction or purpose in your life? Well, Paul says that the gospel speaks to that. The gospel bears fruit in every good work. You see, our good, good works are not, the, are not so that God will save us, but it's because God has saved us. Our good works are the fruit of our salvation, not the source of our salvation. Paul speaks to this when he writes from prison to another group of people, the Christians who are living at Ephesus. Listen to what he says to them in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You might flip over a couple pages and follow along if you have your Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, whose spirit is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were all by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is grace, by grace, that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says the gospel bears fruit in every good work. And he also says the gospel causes growth in our knowledge of God. I wonder right now in your life, do you feel stuck? Do you feel maybe stagnant in your life or even in your relationship with God? Well, Paul says the gospel will bear fruit, but it also will help you grow in your knowledge of God. God will continue to accomplish the sanctification and growth that happens through the gospel. Peter speaks about this in a, in a diatribe that he provides the, the people he writes to. Second Peter chapter one, Peter says this, God's divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by its evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities, Peter says, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and productive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel it's not about not going to hell. It's about how to live in the between now and heaven. The gospel is about salvation, being made holy. It's also about sanctification, living like it. Sanctification is one of those big words you might not have a good working definition for. Let me just say it to you simply. The sanctification is living like Jesus. It's the process of living like Jesus. Salvation is free. Jesus paid it all once for all when he died on the cross and came back to life. Sanctification will cost you everything. Jesus says, if you're not willing to, to give up everything and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And sanctification is a lifelong process. It starts the moment that you say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and it ends when you meet him face to face. 
That's why we have made our mission to live in love like Jesus, because that is a response to the gospel. It's what the gospel does in us and through us. Paul says, through the gospel, we bear fruit in every good work. We are growing in our knowledge of God and also we're being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Maybe today you feel weak. Maybe you feel helpless. The gospel gives us power. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God that brings salvation to every person. The gospel contains the key to unlocking the power of God and to bring righteousness. And so we must rely on God's power to save and to sanctify as we navigate the ups and downs and the twists and turns of life. We have this power from God. It's available to us, so we must use it. Paul says the gospel gives us great endurance and patience. Maybe today you feel like quitting. Maybe today you feel like giving up or maybe giving in. Paul says the power of the gospel helps you endure and to have patience. These two words, endurance and patience, they're synonyms, but they have some unique nuances. Endurance is perseverance in trying circumstances. Patience is an attitude that leads toward long-suffering. So patience is the attitude and endurance is the action, all because of the gospel. The gospel puts life into perspective. We're motivated by what God does for us and through Christ, and we're willing to suffer and endure because he did. And the Bible is filled with the life stories of people who endured through the power of God because of what Christ had done for them. In fact, you can read a lot of their stories in Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the, the hall of faith. And following those stories, the Hebrew writer says this, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the people whose stories he's just shared, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Paul says the gospel bears fruit, gives us knowledge of God. It strengthens us with all power. It gives us great endurance and patience. And it also leads to joyful things to the Father. Do you truly understand what God did on your behalf? by allowing his only son to die on the cross and then to raise him from the grave and to do all that simply for you so that you could know him, so that your life could be transformed to what it used to be, to what it was intended to be. And that's all a life that's filled with God, honors him, and it glorifies him. I love a new song that we're singing around Crossroads. It's, I thank God. And it really just puts in perspective the, the power of the gospel. I think Paul could have written this song. It's his story, and it's our story too. One of the bridges of that song just says like, hell lost another one, I am free. I hope that that's your story. I hope that that continues to be all of the story that we sing and worship God for. You know, people always ask me, like, you grew up in Kentucky. Do you ever get tired of being like the laughing stock of the whole country? And the answer to that is no, I'm kind of used to it by now, age 47. But people ask me also, like, 
the whole country picks on Kentucky. Who do the people of Kentucky pick on? Well, that's an easy question. Uh, the answer is West Virginia, people from West Virginia. Nothing against the people of West Virginia, but everybody needs somebody to pick on, right? I grew up uh, not too far from West Virginia. In fact, I went to school even closer to West Virginia. And so for entertainment, we watched the evening news, right? There wasn't much to do in rural Kentucky. And one event that caught my attention when I was a student in college is a large tanker truck was waiting in a toll plaza line to pay their toll. It caught fire and exploded. I mean, the flames were going crazy, right? And this was a big news story. And so they interviewed one of the toll booth workers, pride of West Virginia, I'm sure. And they asked him, sir, did you see the tanker truck? He said, sure did. He said, what did you do when the tanker truck exploded? And he said, I hit the floor. That's what I've done. Now, if you uh, aren't familiar with the English language, that isn't the appropriate way to kind of describe an event like that. I hit the floor. That's what I did. Or that's what was accomplished. There's some, a lot of words that you could choose there. Done is probably not the best word to use there. But, you know, I think it applies to the gospel. What has God done on our behalf, right? Actually, uh, I need to stand corrected. What has God accomplished? What is the gospel accomplishing in your life? What has it accomplished? What is it accomplishing? What will it accomplish? Well, Paul kind of wraps up this section of Colossians 1 by addressing that. He says, first of all, that the gospel has qualified us into the inheritance of his holy people, the kingdom of light. I love that word qualified because it has nothing to do with me. It's not something I did. It's something that God did. He did it. He qualified you know, a true inheritance is not something that we earn. It's something that we receive. It's bestowed to us or on us. God justifies us through the gospel. He also rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Paul uses this word rescue to tell his own story. And he actually uses the same contrast of, of light and darkness in this imagery. It's his story. It's our story, too. We are justified. We are rescued. Paul says we're brought into the kingdom of the son he's, he loves. We're no longer slaves or orphans. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are co-heirs with Christ. Paul says he has redeemed us. That's maybe another big word that you might not know the definition to. It just means that we were purchased. We were ransomed. Let me put it in modern day terms. Like it's really cool right now to restore things back to their original intent or their original condition. Like you might buy a home and restore it back to its original condition. You might buy a piece of furniture or you might uh, have something that, a car that you restore. Let me just tell you, restoration is expensive. It costs you lots of money. It costs you lots of time and a lot of effort. But that idea of restoring back to its original condition is what redeemed is all about. God spent the money. He spent the time and energy to return us back to our original condition. Peter says this, you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Paul says we're justified, we are rescued, we're brought, we're redeemed, and he says we're forgiven of our sins. David wrote a beautiful description in Psalm 103 about forgiveness. Why? Because he had experienced it. He wrote this psalm most likely after committing adultery with Bathsheba and also killing her husband. He came clean to God. He owned up to what he had done, and he experienced the forgiveness of God. And he writes this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, 
abounding in love, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is good news because we've been rescued and redeemed. We've been forgiven and freed. We've been saved and sanctified. It's a once and for all exchange that transforms our life daily. It's not about escaping hell, it's about living holy. We're saved from sin and we are saved for righteousness. And the gospel is the foundation of what life in Jesus is really all about. And it must become the center of our lives. So don't be confused by the boisterous claims of the culture around us that offers us quick fixes, empty promises, faulty arguments, even fictitious claims. Pursue the truth of the gospel that's found in God's word that offers you a love like you'll never find anywhere else. Grace and forgiveness for whatever you have done. Purpose and peace for you to live in this crazy world. And patience and perseverance as you await your true home in heaven. Let the gospel address your past. Let the gospel define your present. Let the gospel guarantee your future. I want to leave you with some homework this week. I want you to read the book of Colossians. But I also want you to take some time to reflect on maybe what you've learned about the gospel from Paul's words this morning. Then I want you to take some time to use the space provided on this card to write out a prayer. A prayer that would thank God for the power of the gospel. And also ask God to help you grow, to help you be strong, to help you to have perseverance and, and patience, to endure, that would help you to remember that you are forgiven and free. And use this just as an exercise to thank God for what he has done for you and to live in response to that. Would you pray with me? God, we stand here in your sight, those of us who have claimed Jesus as Savior, as forgiven and free. God, the world wants to heap upon us accusation. They want to call us names. They want to disregard who Jesus is. Lord, they want to fill our minds with things that are of this world. And God, while that temptation is loud and strong, God, we ask that you would help us to be centered on what truly is the greatest truth the world has ever known. That is that Jesus died for us. That he did that to forgive us of our sins, but he did that for so much more, to help us to live here every day in response to that. God, would you make that a reality in our life through the power of Jesus' blood that he shed on the cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit that is living in us, through the power of your word that teaches us. God, I pray that we would be not just students, not just hearers, but God, we would be responding to the truth with commitment, with desire, with hope, with peace. And God, that that would change the way that we live. The world would notice not to give us any glory or credit, but that they be drawn to you, God. That's our ultimate goal, our ultimate prayer. We pray it through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.